One of my favorite things to do as a kid was to play tackle football in the front yard with my friends. Um, there, there could be two of us <laughs> just lining up against each other and running plays. Three, four, five, fifteen, have the whole yard filled with these little boys running around. And the thing about tackle football as a kid, and this is really any pickup game, is there are no refs. Right, So it's every man slash child for themselves out there. And so that means when, like, when something's disputed, um, you just got to make a decision together. When, uh, when, when someone says they, you know, there was a fumble and the other person disagrees or someone claims that wasn't a touchdown when one says it was. So what do you do when there's a dispute? A lot of times somebody just calls for a do-over. You know a do-over? Where just all of a sudden you can't settle it and it's just do-over! And the play starts over. It's like it never happened. But it did happen. You know it happened. But now you're getting a second chance to kind of see what's going to happen. This passage is the do-over passage for Jonah. This is, this is God calling do-over to him. And you'll notice as we read the first few verses of chapter 3, they're eerily similar to the first few verses of chapter 1. Uh, Maybe if you've been reading through Jonah this semester, I encourage you to read it, uh, even read it maybe even once a week. And and hopefully that theme has shown up for you. This is the do-over. So let's read the passage and hear what happens this time. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he rose from his throne removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn. And relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord, and they will stand forever. We're in this time of year right now where everyone is beginning to post. That spring Clemson traditional Instagram post, the acceptance letter posts, right? It's an exciting moment for families all over the place. The, the getting into Clemson, they're excited to share that news with the world. Hashtag Tiger Town Bound, and it's out there. Because when you, when you get life-changing news, you want people to experience it with you, right? You want people to know about this thing that you're going through. You can't wait to share that message. Uh, I want to tell you about a guy named Erlon Woods who got a message that completely changed his life pretty recently. Erlon is the co-host of this show I listen to, this podcast, uh, that that chronicles life in San Quentin um, Prison in California. 
And Erlon, what's so interesting about the show is he's one of the prisoners and is producing this show from inside the prison. And he, along with his co-host, who's not a prisoner, they work together and they tell these stories, these true stories about life on the inside. It's so different than maybe what you would expect. Erlon used to always begin the show by introducing himself and saying that he had been incarcerated for 21 years and he was now in San Quentin. But at the beginning of an episode, back in December, they opened and said they had a special announcement to make. And Erlon's voice came on the podcast and he said, after 21 years in prison, Governor Jerry Brown, the great governor of California, decided that I had served enough time in California State Prison. And he commuted my sentence to be released immediately. Right now, it's time for me to go. This was the news that changed his life. It really kind of came unexpected. They had, they had done a whole episode on um, parole and getting out and all these different things. And he, he didn't see it in his future for a long time. And, and all of a sudden he had this news. So Erlon, who once produced a show from inside the prison, is now on the other side of the gates in real time. And he's continuing to tell the, to tell the stories about life on the inside. But he's now on the side of freedom. This is Jonah in chapter 3. Or it should be. Up until now, he's been on the inside. He's been undergoing so much over these last couple of chapters inside of his own hatred and prejudices, inside of his own selfishness and pride, literally inside the belly of the fish. Yet God has now commuted his sentence and he's been set free. So what will life be like on the other side for Jonah? How will the do ever go? So in this passage, I think we find two messages really is kind of one message for two different audiences. Uh, First is the message through Jonah to the Ninevites, and then it's the actual message to Jonah. We're going to consider both of those. First, the message through Jonah. See, at the beginning, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time and uh, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This is God talking to Jonah. The wording here is almost exactly like chapter one, except for two notable differences. In chapter one, God said to tell them that their evil has come up before him. But now he just says, tell them the message that I tell you to tell them. The second difference is, uh, should be obvious, Jonah's reaction, right? This time he arose, just like in chapter one, Jonah arose. And when he went to Tarshish last time, now he's actually going to Nineveh instead of running West, he's actually going east. And so, so far, so good for old brother Jonah. There's an emphasis here, obviously, on on Nineveh's greatness. This has come up before. This is an important city to God. Though Nineveh was the capital of the evil Assyrian Empire, Nineveh was on God's heart. He had a message even for his enemies. I think it goes to show that God sees all places And all people and people groups as important. No matter how you may look at a group of people or a particular place to to God, this is a place and a people for hope to be proclaimed. And so what's the message that God gave Jonah to preach to Nineveh comes in verse four. This is it. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That'll preach, right? Just a few words in Hebrew, you look at that and you're like, that's it. Like after all he's been through, after all that he struggled with, that's that's the message. That's the message. Um, now, there could have been more to it. Scholars 
disagree on this, if there could have been, you know, maybe more to the message than that. Uh, But regardless, the message that we have recorded for us here is very short. It's also very clear and, and it's and it's pointed um, two particular things I want to point out about the message. The first thing is this idea, the 40 days. Why 40 days? I don't know if that stands out to you at all. Uh, 40 historically serves in Scripture as a time of testing. It's a time of testing. You can think about the many different ways 40 shows up in Scripture. Uh, Israel's 40 years in Egypt. Then Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Um, Moses' 40 days on Mount Sinai, even in Jesus' story, Jesus is tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, going to battle with Satan. 40 is this time of testing. And with a message, Jonah is warning the Ninevites that God is aware of their evil and he's giving them an opportunity to turn to him. So that's one part of the message. The other part is the, the why the overthrown part. Like, why is he saying Nineveh will be overthrown? Um, commentators point out that there's this kind of linguistic play on words going on here in the Hebrew. That overthrown is actually the same word uh, for transformed. Transformed. And so you, you have this message that either they will be transformed by their turning to God. Or they will be transformed slash overcome by God if they don't. Does that make sense? So there's a little bit of a play on words here. So this is a very firm and clear warning from the otherwise reluctant prophet. Uh, Some may say a message like this feels very harsh. um, That surely we wouldn't say things like this today. It's insensitive or intolerant or unloving. Why don't you let them, Jonah, just let them do their thing like let them do what makes sense to them, what works for them, uh, what they thought was best. Like, just let you do you, bro, kind of stuff, right? Just let them do their thing. And, and so people would say that this is an unloving message. But if, if we know anything about the Assyrian Empire, what they were doing and the ways that they were living uh, was horrible. Like it was horrible and people were being mistreated all over the place. People within the Assyrian Empire and people on the outside, they were um, they were so unjust to the people within their nation, not taking care of their people. And they were terrorists to people outside of their country, even to Israel very directly. And so what they were doing wasn't working and it was hurting Everyone in the process. And so if anyone needed to turn to the Lord and beg for mercy, it would be the Ninevites. And if anyone would shock you by actually turning to the Lord, it would be the Ninevites. But God was giving them a chance to turn from their evil ways and turn to him. That's what repentance means. It means turning from one thing to the other, turning from their evil ways and turning to the Lord. This was not a hateful message. This was a loving message. You know, uh, the silly illustration of this is imagine you're you're running along the dikes uh, just off campus uh, like I was attempting to do today. And you're running and you're jogging and all those people are around you and you come up on this like sudden cliff on the dikes like it didn't used to be there. But something happened and something washed through there and there's this massive drop off. Would it be unloving of you? 
to uh, to just not tell anyone like to just kind of leave it and just kind of start walking back to your car like and just let all these joggers pass you by. Would that be the nice thing to do? Of course not. That, that's a that would be an unloving thing to do is to not tell them, hey, there's this cliff you could fall off of. Be careful out there. So it's not intolerant. It's actually it's actually caring to point out to someone that where they're headed is ruining them. And it's ruining others. To tell someone that where you're headed will absolutely destroy your life is actually very, very loving. It's loving to confront a friend who is hurting themselves. It's loving to come alongside someone who's in the middle of a toxic relationship and you see the ways that it's affecting them and to let them know that. It's loving to tell your friend that their temper is hurting people around them or their judgmental attitude is isolating everyone who's around them. Like that's a loving thing to do. It sounds harsh, but it's actually loving. It's loving to come alongside someone to help them see that they are running from God. And that the reason they're going to so many different things in their lives is because they're on the run from God. And God wants them to turn around and run to him. Jonah's message, though it may not have come from a loving place in his own heart, as we'll see next week, it was a loving message because it was from God's heart. God's message to sinners. So how did they respond? Amazingly, actually, verse four or verse five captures their response. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, but on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. On paper, this is like the greatest, most surprising and most dramatic automatic revival of all time, right? The king who uh, is basically kind of serves more so as a governor in the way that we think in this land. He even issued this proclamation for the whole city to fast and pray and change their ways and repent and turn to Yahweh himself so that he might spare them. So they repented. They turned from their ways and turned to the Lord. It's a sort of amazing, right? You kind of read this and you're like, how in the world did this happen? Was that message really that good? Really, it has nothing to do with the preaching. It has nothing to do with Jonah. What we're seeing here is that God had been preparing the Ninevites to turn to him. To respond to this message, despite their evil ways, God was already at work in their hearts, including the king's heart. In fact, historians pick this up, by the way. This is such an interesting study that Assyria, up until this point when Jonah preached this message, had been experiencing all sorts of very weird things in their land. Uh, They've been having uh, all sorts of famine. They had some sort of plagues going on in their land years before this. Revolts. Even some eclipses, eclipses, eclipsi in the sky. You know what eclipse is? Those, like they were, there were just strange things happening in their land. That perhaps they were asking questions of what's going on here. And then this Israelite comes into town. And he starts preaching this message. That Yahweh's after you. Look to him. Listen, no one turns to God because of good preaching. No one turns to God just because they heard you share the right testimony in the perfect way. 
And no one turns to God because you pick the right song at the end of the service. Like those are not the reasons people turn to God. I know the idea of evangelism sort of scares some of us, but we have to see this emphasis. They are turning to God because by his grace, he is already at work removing the scales from their eyes. And so if you, like me, kind of get a little anxious when it comes to this idea of talking to others about your faith, perhaps people in your life who who aren't Christians, you think, what if I offend someone? Or what if I get the message wrong or they don't like what I have to say? I hope that you can be encouraged by this very dramatic event recorded for us in Scripture. That if God is at work, He is at work. And they will respond in His timing through His message that may come even through you. Even the Ninevites responded, even to Jonah's preaching. It is God's message that transforms lives by his grace and for his glory. But by his grace, he also wants to use you to preach that message. Through our words and through our actions, God wants you to be used to transform lives and even to actually transform cultures. And that's not too big of a reach from this passage This was not just individuals who were turning to God. It transformed their location. Justice came into that land. People began to be treated differently. The greatest to the least of them means that there had been some sort of system in place that was harming people's lives. And even the systems were beginning to be attacked because of God's grace in the land. I heard this great quote recently. I think it was from a Puritan somewhere who said, it's our job to stack wood, but God's the, God's the one who sends the fire. It's our job to stack the wood, but God's the one who sends the fire. And God sent the fire to Nineveh and began to transform that place. Verse 10 says that when God saw that they turned from their evil ways, that God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. Now, this is a bit of a tricky sentence, and you may read that, and some of your translations probably even say God repented of the disaster that he would do to them. So does this mean that God changes his mind? Does this mean God changes his mind based on what we do? Well, not exactly, because we see in other places in Scripture that God is not like man in that way. He doesn't change his mind. So what does this mean? I really like actually how John Calvin picked this up. He said that this sort of imagery of God repenting in Scripture, and it comes up a lot. Uh, The translation I use says relented. But this idea of God repenting or relenting, Calvin said it's like God speaking to us in baby talk. He's using words that we can understand because it's like the ways that we would change. So from our perspective, it seems that God is changing, but God's not changing because God doesn't change. But he's using baby talk to translate it for us, to help us understand a little bit of his character and his grace. Um, it's kind of like when I ask you engineers what, you, what you're studying right now, and you dumb it down for me, like way down. And sometimes I'll even say to you, like, tell me like you would tell a fifth grader. And then I will say, let's go third grade. Because you have to dumb it down for me. It's also like when my daughters describe what I do for a living. 
And they say, he works for RUF, which means he eats ice cream with college students. (laughs) Which is remarkably accurate. (laughs) You and I both know that, I mean, there may be a little more uh, to my job than that, but like... But that's also right. Like, that's what, I, that's what I do from their perspective. This idea of us seeing God changing his mind is really from God's gracious way of helping us to see that he's responding. That he sees us. That he sees the Ninevites. He's aware of their repentance. And he's responding to their response. He's not changing his mind, but what he is doing is he's redirecting his wrath somewhere else. God's anger, which was dead set against the evil Assyrian Empire in this moment because of their sin against him, he's now redirecting because they responded to the message that Jonah preached. Yet it was God who prepared them for that response. And now by his grace, he welcomes sinners home. But hasn't that been what God's been doing since the very beginning of this book? If you've been with us um, for the last couple of months, what he's been doing all along is, is welcoming sinners home. This is the message of grace that changed the Ninevites. But now the question is, will it change Jonah? And so we turn again to look at our anti-hero prophet. And one of the deepest encouragements for me in this passage is not just the beautiful picture of the amazing cross-cultural message of Jonah and the cross-cultural changing result, but it's this sentence that in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. God has not stopped dealing with Jonah. Isn't that amazing? After the many ways that Jonah has run, that he's hidden, God's grace just keeps coming after him. Have you ever failed in an assignment in a class and your teacher lets you make it up a second time? Or like your entire class bombed the midterm and then they say, we're going to let you retake that test a second time. I will never forget my sophomore year of college when I had an 8 a.m. exam and a 9.30 a.m. exam. I feel like it was a Wednesday morning. And I'd studied very, very, very late. And I was sleeping very, very, very good. (laughs) And I woke up at 10.30. Yeah. So the panic... That said, I lived in a fraternity house right on campus, so I was able to literally throw on a hat, and I just booked it all the way to that first professor's office, which was the first building. It was the 8 a.m. class. And Dr. Montgomery was his name. And I remember him just simply saying, come by at 1. You can retake it. Thank you. Now I ran to Bib Graves Hall, <laughs> found the professor for my 930 class, and they were so gracious. And they let me take it that afternoon as well. They didn't have to do that. Like, that was my failure. I slept through two exams. They didn't have to be that kind, but they were. Listen, God doesn't leave Jonah in his failure. You've got to see that in this passage. He doesn't leave him in his failure. He doesn't let him run too far. 
He doesn't let him doubt too much. He doesn't ever let him go. A love that will not let me go. He doesn't. God is still talking to Jonah. And he still has a message for him. So what is God's message to Jonah? It's simply this. Jonah, my grace is for you too. There's a reason chapter 3 follows chapter 2. Because Jonah has to believe the message and live through his imprisonment before he understands freedom. He has to experience grace before he can genuinely offer it. And so now on the other side of the prison walls, I think about Erlon Woods, he can tell these stories about life on the inside in a way that he never could before because he lived it. And now he can share about it in freedom. If you're a Christian, and by the way, I, I know not all of you are. I know, I, I certainly don't assume that anyone comes into this room as a Christian. I know a lot of you are in different places in your faith. And this is a, hopefully a safe place for you to process this. If you are a Christian, you need to know that before you were called to speak, you were called to listen. Before you're called to give, you were called to receive. From God, Or as John Owen put it, the word, that word can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts. So if you're a Christian, you're worried that you can never share your story because your story is a broken one. Or you've made a lot of mistakes along the way, or sometimes you have doubts, or sometimes you live out of your fears. Or sometimes you struggle with the same sin, like the same sin you've been struggling with for years. And you just can't get through it. And you feel like, I can never share these things with someone else because why would they ever believe? Can I ask you, what other story is there to share? What other story is there to share other than... The one about that gracious God who loves sinners like you and like me. The message, the gospel message is the story that God saves strugglers. That God saves broken people like you and like me. That God sent his son into the world to live for and to die for people like us. I will tell you this. I... I've been thinking about this a lot lately in my job and my role, uh, even on this campus and conversations I get to have with you guys. Um, there's so many ways in which I have to relive my own sins with you. And that's a hard thing, but it's a beautiful thing. I, I see the ways that God has used patterns in my life, whether it's anxiety, fear, sexual sin, uh, anger issues, addictions, pride, whatever. Stories in in my own story, some things that God has brought me through and some things that I'm still wrestling through right now. What other story do we have to share? Other than the one that God still loves us, even when he really knows us. That's the story that you get to share about a loving God. 
Think of the ways that God is showing you grace even now in this season of your life. I know many of you are going through some very difficult things. The ways God is showing his grace to you right now. As you wait on a job, as you wait on a placement, as you are jealous, as you're struggling with envy, as you're struggling with pride, as you're struggling with your grades or you're struggling with stuff at home. How is God meeting you now? Sinclair Ferguson said that the salvation of one sinner in this passage was intended to produce the salvation of many others. And that's why chapter three is after chapter two. The salvation of one brought about the salvation of so many. Is that not a reflection of the very gospel of Jesus Christ? Jesus, who went to the cross for all of our evils, too. Those Assyrians are not worse than us. In our hearts, our prejudices, our injustices, our envy, our pride. Friends, do not, we do not love God because we are good. We love because he first loved us. And by his grace, you have heard a message of hope and love and forgiveness. That even while we were sinners and even while we were enemies, as Paul says in Romans 5, Christ died for us. The Bible teaches that we all deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. And if you don't believe that about yourself, then you haven't yet really understood grace. But God withheld his judgment against you and he redirected it to the cross of Christ. Jesus died for these very sins that are killing us in so many ways. And his death and his consequent salvation through the resurrection produces a salvation for many. And anyone who would put their faith in him. And this is for all of you. If you would respond to the message of Jesus and the ways the Ninevites responded to Jonah's message. This truth is for you. God saves. And so this is the story that we're called to share. Not of our strength, but of his. Not of our obedience, but of his. Not of the ways that we have loved God perfectly, but the ways that we have been loved perfectly by him. Have you experienced this sort of grace? Have you been welcomed home? If you have, this kind of stuff changes you. It changes entire cultures. As you probably remember, um, in the fall, American, the great American evangelist Billy Graham passed away. And just after his death, one of Billy's children, Ruth, <coughs> shared this story um, of when she thought her parents would totally reject her. But they did the very opposite. Ruth had been married for 21 years when she and her husband got a divorce. And then she began to date this other guy that she met. He was a nice enough guy, but her parents and her children, her grown children at that point, didn't really approve of this guy. And they felt like things were moving too quickly. But she just kind of ignored all of their advice and just jumped into this marriage very quickly. And she said it wasn't long at all into this marriage that she realized that she had really made a terrible mistake. And she actually began to be scared of the man that she was married to. And so she essentially left him and went to the only safe place she could think of. And that was to her parents' home in Montreal. And she describes this moment where she's driving for two days from where she lived to go find her parents and let them know what's been going on with her. 
and she describes a scene of driving through those mountains and the windy roads to Montreat. And as she drove up, expecting condemnation, there her dad was waiting for her. And she said he came out to her and he hugged her and he said, welcome home. And here's what she writes. She says, there was no shame. There was no blame. There was no condemnation. Just unconditional love. My father's embrace at that moment was one of the most profound gestures of acceptance I've ever experienced. To be utterly broken and still accepted. To feel ugly and yet be loved. To feel like an outcast and still be welcomed. I marveled at the contrast between my heart so full of shame and regret and my father's, which was so full of love. She said, my father was not God, but he showed me what God was like that day. His one act of grace changed my life and informed who I am. I'm so grateful God accepts me as I am hurting, wounded and broken. I'm glad he chooses me to be part of his family, regardless of my past mistakes and sins. He wants me. He cares about me. His arms are open to me at all times. Even when I'm in the ruins, God stands watching the road, eager for me to come home to him. Listen to this line. She says, God doesn't stop at ruin. It's where he begins. And brokenness is a qualification for service to him. This is the last thing. She says, God does not hold in his hand a list of my failures. He's not waiting to judge me. He's waiting to be with me. He's waiting to embrace me and welcome me home. Friends, I I want you to know that that's the message of deeper grace for you. No matter where you are, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what you're struggling with right now, no matter what you struggle with today, even tonight. God stands to welcome you home. To welcome you home with arms out wide. You may feel like a colossal failure and he says, welcome home. You may feel like you've just blown it too many times and he says, welcome home. You may feel full of shame and regret and he stands and says, welcome home. This grace transforms our lives. And let me just end with this. This sort of message is exactly what can transform our world. I don't know if you realize this. I've just been thinking about this so much lately, and I really do end with this thought. Our culture that we live in right now, this kind of modern American individualism or whatever, is so opposed to the idea of grace. So opposed. It's interesting. We live in a world that kind of wants to say sin does like sin's not really a thing. It's all up to you and what you believe. But at the same time, grace is certainly not a thing. I could list off a thousand different ways that that I see this today. But this message of grace is what the people around you so desperately need. True grace, deeper grace for sinners like you and me to be welcomed home. How does Jonah respond to God's message of grace? That'll be next week. But the real question is how will you and how will I respond to this message even tonight? Would you pray with me?